So this is typical. I'm upstairs in the office working on this podcast and what is that racket? Yep, that's my kids. My house can get pretty noisy and my three kids, they're basically in their own world. But let's think about this next story from a kid's perspective. Let's say you're a kid, you wake up one day and your mom has been transformed into a pirate. Would you even notice? Did your kids notice? Um, no, not till, not till I have the eye patch on. That's Anne. And she didn't actually change into a pirate, but she did have to wear a cool eye patch. And that's because Anne developed Bell's palsy around the time she delivered her third baby. She can laugh about it now, of course. My son, actually, funny enough, my two-year-old son, that's when he learned about pirates and started saying, Arr! <laughs> and he's still, to this day, we had to get him a pirate outfit. Now it's like his favorite thing. Anne's son wears her old eye patch as part of his pirate costume. Welcome to The Push. This is a pregnancy neurology podcast. For today's episode, we're talking about peripheral neuropathies in pregnancy and the postpartum period. Anne was one of 40 cases of Bell's palsy per 100,000 births. So why does it happen? And what other nerves can be affected by pregnancy, labor, and delivery? We have experts lined up, so stay tuned. We'll start with Anne's story. Anne had two kids, was pregnant with her third. Then, pretty late in her third trimester, she started to get some numbness in the left side of her face. She remembers having some pain behind the ear as well. So what did she do? She ignored it. You know, that's just a mom thing. You sometimes put yourself last and you're just worried about whatever is going on with the kids. I actually think when I started having symptoms, I just thought it was stress. And was my face a little bit numb? Maybe it was. Was my face a little bit droopy? Oh, I guess maybe it was. I think I did have a little bit of a dry eye now that I think about it, you know. I just thought, but I can't deal with it right now. I'm about to have a baby. Bell's palsy in the third trimester of pregnancy and the postpartum period is about three times that of the general population. Anne had a C-section because her baby was breech. But even after the baby was born, she still tried to ignore her symptoms for two more weeks. We had a lot going on. We had a three-year-old in the house at a time and not even two-year-old at that time. And, you know, this brand new couple-week-old baby. Okay. So if you've ever seen someone with Bell's palsy, it's pretty obvious. Usually, over a day or a couple of days, half of the face weakens to the point that it's not moving at all. The eye doesn't blink on that side and the eyebrow doesn't raise. That's actually how we differentiate it from something like a stroke, where only the lower part of the face is affected. And people who have Bell's palsy are literally drooling out of the corner of their mouth. They can lose taste on the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, and noises sound muffled in that ear. But Anne, maybe she was just too busy to notice that an entire half of her face wasn't moving? I'm kind of like internally cracking up here, though, because I think of Bell's palsy as like, kind of hard to miss, you know? (laughs) But when you're, I mean, literally, like, you're out to hear, you know, I mean, you think of all these other things you have going on. In your brain, you're saying, this is not happening to me. This is just because I'm tired. My face is kind of droopy. Or this is because I'm stressed out and it'll go away. I would blink and my right eye would not close. And my husband looked at me at one point, too, and said, you realize your right eye is not closing when you're blinking. And it's true. And then when it really hit me and I really looked in the mirror at myself, I remember for the first time, and I tried to smile, and I literally could not smile with one side of my face. It was like, okay, I got to get to a doctor because this is not normal. This is not just a little, I'm tired. You know, this is something really serious. That's when Anne met Dr. Erica Hardy. Dr. Hardy is an obstetrical medicine and infectious disease specialist at Women and Infants Hospital. She's the one that diagnosed and treated Anne's Bell's palsy. I asked her, 
how do you normally treat this condition? I treated her with uh, prednisone. So for an infectious disease doctor, using a fairly efficient immunosuppressive isn't always comfortable, but the data with Bell's palsy or with seventh nerve palsy, um, regardless of the cause, it looks like prednisone does help them get better a little bit faster. A short course of steroids, usually about 10 days, is evidence-based. Why does it work? It probably treats the inflammation around the nerve and reduces immune-related factors that are contributing to the nerve damage. We use it in both infectious and post-infectious causes of Bell's palsy. Though there's not a lot of data specifically in pregnancy and postpartum Bell's palsy, it's still probably worth a try. For Anne, the prednisone helped take away the pain and tingling she was experiencing almost immediately. Once I had that prescription too, I felt like I got a lot better over that next week. After I saw Dr. Hardy, um, thank goodness I had seen her that day because that night is when it got really bad with my eye not being able to close and everything. And she, thank goodness, told me, now it might get a little worse, so don't be scared if that happens. That's how Anne got her eye patch. Patching the eye protects it from corneal abrasions, especially at night. Lubricating eye drops can also help. Now, one question that comes up for us neurologists treating Bell's palsy is, what about antivirals like acyclovir and valacyclovir? We used to give them empirically for this condition all the time. Why was that? Dr. Hardy explained that the original theory was that Bell's palsy was almost certainly due to a virus. Herpes simplex virus and um, the chickenpox virus or shingles or varicella virus. Um, Those are all part of the herpes virus class, and those are neurotropic viruses. So thinking that perhaps some of this is herpes virus related. Oh, if this is a herpes virus causing this, well, let's give them an antiviral medication. But the evidence for this didn't hold up. Comparing prednisone alone to antivirals alone, the antivirals didn't demonstrate improvement, while prednisone did. But Dr. Hardy added that there is some evidence and some expert opinion to support combining these therapies in the most severe cases. Now, honestly, without someone like Dr. Hardy to sift through these studies and expert opinion, it can get pretty tricky to figure out what's what. That's exactly what Anne realized early on. Of course, you do what every patient does, which you're not supposed to do, the doctors tell you all the time, which is Google it right away. And you look this up and you see things like, you know, advanced Lyme disease, Bell's palsy, advanced Lyme disease. Oh my gosh, what if I have advanced Lyme disease? I asked Dr. Hardy, was this just internet hype? Or should we really be worried about Lyme disease? Yeah, so Lyme disease, a bacteria, again, so not a virus, but a bacteria, spirochete, is one of the causes of Bell's palsy. So in our area, which might not be the case everywhere, a percentage of the Bell's palsy we see is going to be due to Lyme disease. We live here in the Northeast U.S., so even though the incidence of Bell's palsy is high in pregnancy and postpartum, Dr. Hardy usually checks these patients for Lyme disease. If testing is positive, she treats. And if it's negative, she repeats testing in six weeks. If a postpartum patient does test positive for Lyme, what should she take? Um, Usually doxycycline. Um, If somebody's pregnant, we don't use doxycycline, so we would use amoxicillin or cefuroxime orally. Um, If they have central nervous system Lyme disease, Lyme disease can cause meningitis and, again, other neurologic issues. We actually treat that with IV medication. And specifically IV ceftriaxone. But again, a lumbar puncture is indicated only if there are systemic symptoms. Now, Anne tested negative for Lyme disease. Dr. Hardy told her that the symptoms would get better with time. And her treatment and reassurance went a long way. But how much time does it take to get better? And how do these pregnant and postpartum women do in general? To answer those questions, I spoke with Dr. Kara Stavros. She's a neuromuscular specialist at Rhode Island Hospital. It does seem like women who get Bell's palsy when they're pregnant or postpartum actually have a more severe presentation than women who are not pregnant. 
Um, so like a, wor a worse facial droop, worse, worse symptoms overall, which is usually a poor prognostic factor, but they actually tend to do pretty well when they get it during pregnancy. In other words, most of them make a complete recovery within weeks to months. There are some exceptions, and for women who have incomplete or slow recovery, physical therapy, including massage and electrical stimulation, can help. Now, there are some experimental surgeries, which are not well established, and sometimes Botox can be used to relax the muscle of the eye and allow it to close properly. So far, we've talked about Bell's palsy in pregnancy and the postpartum period. How do you diagnose it? How do you treat it? And what tests do you send? But why does Bell's palsy happen more commonly in these pregnant or postpartum women? Here's Dr. Stavros again. There's not a clear explanation for it. Uh, there's some theories about relative immunosuppression, maybe lowering the threshold for having a Bell's palsy. Um, and there's a lot of other theories about uh, hormonal levels, increased extracellular volume, and, and others. There is a higher incidence of Bell's palsy among women with hypertensive disorders or preeclampsia, in which there's more fluid in general. And the thought is, the nerve already has to go through a pretty narrow canal to get to the face. Maybe this extra fluid puts the nerve at risk. Extra fluid might be a factor in some other neuropathies of pregnancy as well. There's many, many other neuropathies in pregnancy, and the most common by far is carpal tunnel syndrome. And people think it has something to do with maybe the uh, fluid retention, maybe causing uh, some edema of the tissues, or maybe they, there's changes in sleep position when you're pregnant. There's a lot of theories. Like Bell's palsy, carpal tunnel syndrome is idiopathic. Patients present with achy pain in their wrists that can radiate up their arms, and they get tingling in the fingers, specifically at night. Usually if you see a pregnant patient who has signs of carpal tunnel, uh, you can just manage it conservatively, and the symptoms will get better afterwards. Um, what does that mean, conservatively? What do you do? Uh, conservatively meaning wearing wrist splints, trying to avoid positions or movements that involve a lot of pressure or flexion extension of the wrists, um, and if, if needed, uh, pain medication, but not pursuing more more studies like EMG nerve conduction study or something invasive like surgery or injections. Bell's palsy and carpal tunnel may be idiopathic, but there are a number of lower limb neuropathies that are due to direct compression of the nerves during pregnancy. You can make these diagnoses by history and exam. These neuropathies are like little neuromuscular puzzles to solve. That's where your localization skills really come in because you want to try to figure out, is it purely ephemeral neuropathy, obturator? Does it involve the plexus? Um, so that's where you start having to rely on your exam and your history to try to get the best sense of what was damaged. So let's go through a few common patterns. When you see weakness of hip flexion and knee extension with reduced or absent patellar reflex, particularly after prolonged pushing in labor and delivery, you got to think about femoral neuropathy. Patients with femoral neuropathies have trouble going up and down stairs, and they may need a knee brace to stand, as well as a course of physical therapy. Next, obturator neuropathies are pretty uncommon. They can involve pain or numbness in the groin and weakness of the hip adductor muscles, and it makes it hard for patients to stand on one leg. A more common nerve compression syndrome is lateral femoral cutaneous nerve syndrome, also known as neuralgia paresthetica. In this condition, the nerve gets squashed by the inguinal ligament, causing burning pain in the anterior and lateral thigh. It can happen with weight gain, like in pregnancy, or by wearing tight pants or belts. The pain can be severe, and it typically responds to pain medications or rarely injection of the nerve. Another common one is perineal neuropathy, in which postpartum foot drop occurs after a prolonged labor in a dorsolithotomy position. 
again, a foot brace and physical therapy are about all you can do. Lumbosacral plexopathy involves multiple nerve roots and therefore multiple muscles and sensory areas of the nerve. But it's important to remember with this one, if the weakness or sensory loss doesn't fit a common nerve pattern, or if there's back pain, or any systemic disease like HIV, cancer, fever, or any bowel or bladder involvement, we do usually order a lumbar spine MRI and possibly pelvic imaging just to make sure there's no hematoma or compressive mass affecting the nerve roots or plexus. Got it? So how do these patients do? Here's Dr. Stavros. Usually these compression neuropathies have a pretty good prognosis, although it can take months to really heal. The take-home message is that a full recovery is common. But the healing process takes a long time, and that's because there are two ways the nerves could be damaged. If the nerve's just temporarily stunned, it recovers over a few weeks. But if the wiring of the nerve is really injured, then that nerve has to regrow. And nerves regrow at a speed of one millimeter per day. So the farther the nerve has to grow, the longer it takes. And with the longest nerves, that can take up to six months. So far, the neuropathies we've been talking about here present in the third trimester or postpartum period. When you see a neuropathy earlier in the pregnancy, there's one more thing you should think about. Pregnant women, especially women that are having a lot of vomiting in pregnancy, or especially those who meet criteria for hyperemesis gravidarum, you, you have to be particularly careful uh, if they present with symptoms of neuropathy to think of nutritional neuropathies, vitamin deficiencies like vitamin B12 uh, being too low, low B1, and B6 being either too low or too high. As for Anne, she did really well, and everything's now back to normal. Her facial weakness resolved completely within a few weeks. Not that her kids noticed. It's so funny. Their little worlds are just, you know. And they do. That's, I mean, that's the expectation for mom, too, is that mom just keeps everything going, you know. So unless mom is crying on the floor, you know, we're not going to notice that something is off, probably, because, hey, I still get my lunch, my breakfast, my dinner, you know, whatever. I still get my snacks. And I have to say, as a mom, I can relate. And so can Dr. Hardy. If you got Bell's palsy... Do you think your kids would notice? <laughs> I would say probably not. <laughs> so, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, no, they'd probably be like, can we watch TV? <laughs> yes, when's dinner? Yeah. Totally. But yeah. if you started wearing a cool eye patch, what then? Yeah, then that would be fantastic. Then they would love that aspect of it. <laughs> yes. But just the same, kids, they're still pretty amazing. Thank you. Do you want to go outside with me, amazing? Thanks to our experts, Dr. Kara Stavros in the Neurology Department at Rhode Island Hospital, and Dr. Erica Hardy, Infectious Disease and Obstetrical Medicine Specialist at Women and Infants Hospital. Erica also provided additional music for this podcast. That's her playing the fiddle, while the kids are just trying to get our attention. Our theme music is by Tom Van Buskirk, production assistance by Megan Hall and Stephanie Chang. Big thanks to Bob Lovinger in the Lifespan Development Office. Special thanks to Larry Warner and the Rhode Island Foundation for making this podcast possible. <laughs>